you know, the number of times I found myself late at night Googling, am I an alcoholic? Um, and and then managing to convince myself by answering the little questionnaires that would always pop up that I wasn't really an alcoholic because I didn't do things like drink in the morning and have the shakes or, you know, um, I didn't have major blackouts. You know, I found any reason I could to cling on to to think this isn't me. And actually, what I realise now is I was asking the wrong question. You know, the question isn't, am I an alcoholic? That's just a red herring. You know, the terminology is a red herring. The question you should be asking is, is alcohol messing up my life? And if I'd asked that question, I would have realised I should quit a lot earlier, I think. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now, here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. You need other people on the same path to help and encourage you. So here at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. I have 43 months of Friday wins, so I'm going to make this Friday my lifetime win. I have been sober for three and a half years after hearing Tribe Sober on the radio and thinking that I could do a quick 30-day sober challenge just to clean up my system and get everybody off my back. Anyway, fast forward, three and a half years later, I have not touched a drop. And that is because of the support of this wonderful tribe. And now I can also help support people starting out on this really amazing journey. One of the really cool things about podcasting is that over the years we build up archives and we often get new listeners who will binge listen and work their way through all of our previous episodes. We've even got a member who's listened to all of them, twice. She says they keep her motivated and on track, so she listens every single day. So now and again, I'm going to select one of our most popular episodes from the archives and re-release it. The first one that I've chosen is my interview with Claire Pooley, which was originally released about 18 months ago. We've had more than 2,000 downloads for that one. So whether you missed it first time round or just fancy a re-listen, it's really worth it. Claire is the author of The Sober Diaries and she has so many fabulous tips about getting and staying on track. 
When Claire gave up drinking, she started blogging. Her blog became her book, The Hugely Successful Sober Diaries, and she's since gone on to publish two novels. So let's get to our conversation. I began by asking Claire to introduce herself. Okay, so I live in London and I have three kids. I used to be in advertising. I was in advertising for about uh, for nearly 20 years, but now um, I'm a full-time writer. My writing started with a blog, Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And, um, and then I wrote a memoir, The Sober Diaries, um, and now I write fiction. And one of the reasons for moving for moving from non-fiction to fiction is, as the children have got older, writing about my life um, effectively means writing about their lives as well. And any of you with teenagers will know that teenagers really don't like their parents relaying any stories about them, certainly not publicly. So, uh, so, it, so now I write fiction. How exciting! Yes, yes, I, uh, I'm sure the children would. Be, be reading your books and saying, Mum, you can't say this. <laughs> yes, it's difficult when, it, when things like sex scenes, you know, I oh. really can't write because no. I always imagine my children reading them. <laughs> so let's, let's look back a bit. So you had your 20 years in advertising and certainly, I mean, hindsight is, is great, isn't it? When I look back on my, my drinking career, it was quite kind of innocuous in my 20s, even in my 30s, it was very social. And then as I got a bit older, 40s and 50s, it turned more to self-medication then, just kind of staggering home from work, opening a bottle of wine. And I just wondered how yours crept up on you. Uh, yeah, it's very similar, actually. I, I think what generally happened is I started off drinking for sort of social lubrication purposes, you know, so really, um, you know, when I was going out, um, so as a teenager, I just drank with friends in in pubs and clubs and what have you. Um, and gradually over time, I think the sorts of occasions that I associated with drink increased and the emotions that I associated with drink increased. So, you know, I started off just drinking to have fun um, and then, you know, I start to drink whenever there was any form of celebration. And then you start drinking whenever there's any form of commiseration. And then you start drinking to relax and you start drinking to rev up and you start drinking when you're anxious and you start drinking when you're happy. And, you know, before you know it, you're actually drinking, you know, with any sort of form of emotion <laughs> that there is. And that sort of, you know, that happened gradually over over a number of years and uh, you know in the the later years you know I got to the point where every day by wine o'clock I was uh, you know sitting down and opening a bottle of wine and pouring a large glass and and it just my tolerance just increased again very gradually over time so you know it started off with one large glass and then it was two large glasses and then it was three large glasses and three large glasses is effectively a, a bottle so by the end, I was drinking a bottle a day during the week and probably two bottles a day at weekends. And, you know, when I counted it up, which, you know, I tried not to do for a long time, but when I finally did, it was about 10 bottles a week, which is awful. I mean, that's uh, 90 units and the government guidelines are 14. So, yeah, that's how it happened. You are listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. 
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you say about the emotions as well, because, you know, like you, I mean, certainly celebration had to, the bubbly had to come out. But in a way, as we know now, alcohol kind of numbs those emotions. So we're almost dampening them down. So it's. Yeah, um, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, um, you know, what I didn't realize at the time is that when you start drinking to numb, the bad stuff, you know, as you say, you start numbing all the good stuff too. And you end up sort of living your whole life in this sort of slightly numb state, which is, you know, life is short. And it's a great shame to, you know, have the volume turned down like that sort of permanently, which is what I was effectively doing. So let's um, think about the Sober Diaries for a moment. It begins with um, really your, your rock bottom, doesn't it? That, um, that scene with the mug. <laughs> yeah. So talk us through that moment and why you realised things would have to change. Um, yeah, so, so it starts on the day I quit drinking and I, it, was, it, was a, it was a bad day. I woke up um, the day after my birthday party so I had a really bad hangover obviously and um, I went down to my kitchen and my kids were all making loads of racket which is sort of par for the course when you've got three children on a, on a Sunday morning and and I had a terrible headache and I remember thinking you know that the only thing that would make the headache go away is is hair of the dog sort of another drink but it was too early to pour a drink because you know, I thought, you know, I had this hard and fast rule at the time. I had many hard and fast rules, but the main one was you never, ever drink before midday. You know, no, whether you're on holiday, whether it's the weekend, whatever, never before midday. And it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I just couldn't work out how I was going to get from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock um, with this terrible headache and all this racket and feeling really you know, just generally awful. And I opened the cupboard and there was a tiny, tiny bit of red wine left in a bottle, which I saw as a sign because I rarely ever left anything in the bottom of a bottle. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just drink that inch of red wine and that might just take the edge off. And I reached into a cupboard, another cupboard and pulled out a mug because I thought, well, then the kids won't know that I'm drinking red wine rather than, than something acceptable like coffee. So uh, I poured the red wine into this mug and drank it. And I did feel a bit better, sort of almost immediately. And then I looked at the mug and it said on it, the world's best mum. You know, I felt so ashamed of myself that I haven't had a drink since then. That was, the, yeah, that was the very last drink I had. And that was six years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> Well done. Thank Have you. Have you tried to stop before then? I think like everyone who's, who's, you know, finally quit, it's not the first time. And, you know, I'd quit for, for weeks at a time and even months at a time. You know, I think my longest stretch was probably about uh, four months uh, before this point. And what had always happened is I get to, you know, uh, a few weeks in and I start thinking, OK, well, I've now reset the the gauge and things will be different and I know better now and I'm never going to get back into that situation again I'm going to drink moderately and sensibly and I'm going to set all these rules and you know and that would work for a week or two or maybe even three weeks but quite quickly I'd be back to you know not just where I was before but even worse <laughs> so yeah. uh so yeah I had tried a number of times but this was yeah. this time it stuck 
Yeah, it's, it's classic, this moderation thing, isn't it? Because not only do we think we can moderate, but we actually forget how bad we were, I think, and, and how awful we felt after a few weeks. Yeah. I think, oh, um, I can have I think I think something that helped is that I'd been through exactly the same thought processes with smoking. You know, I was a big smoker in my 20s. And, um, you know, when I got to 30, I thought, right, I can't, you know, I've got to quit drink, uh, smoking because, uh, you know, I never wanted to, to smoke in, you know, beyond, you know, the, 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 my teenage years, really. And I did exactly the same thing. You know, I, I quit two or three times. I even quit for a whole year. And then I thought, well, I, I'll just have one at a party. And within, you know, two weeks, I'll be back on a packet a day. And it's exactly the same addiction. Yeah. So, you know, having been through that with smoking, I sort of came to the conclusion that I'm just not a moderator. <laughs> no, very few people are. And I mean, we've had hundreds of people through our workshops now. And I think maybe two or three of them managed to moderate, but 90, mm. 96% can't. Because the thing is, if they're in the, if they're reading the sober diaries or coming to a workshop or thinking about their drinking, then they've probably got an issue with it. Because uh, moderators just moderate. I mean, we're both married to moderators, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and alcohol isn't even on their radar, you know. I mean, because I've stopped drinking now, we we don't have any alcohol in the house. When we go out, maybe even sort of have a a glass of wine, but it's not a thing for him. Yeah, no, mine is, my husband's the same. And and actually, I used to be like that way back, you know, way back in my early 20s. You know, I just didn't think about alcohol. If it was there, it was there. And if it wasn't there, it wasn't there. But there's a great saying that AA have, which is you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle into a cucumber. And, you know, I think when you when you get to a certain point with alcohol or nicotine addiction or any form of addiction, you can never go back to you know being a moderator you sort of it you your brain chemistry tips over the edge and that's it so I yes I used to be a cucumber but I'm now definitely a pickle and I'll always be a pickle (laughs) me too (laughs) but we've made peace with being pickles yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) the way I like to think about it which always makes me feel better about about sort of you know being permanently sober which is you know, I, I have this theory that everybody is born with a lifetime amount of booze that they can they can cope with. And some people, like my husband, managed to string that lifetime supply out over the whole their whole lifetime. And some people like me just drink it all really, really fast and then run out. So it's not actually that we're hard done by. We just took, you know, we just decided to do it all in one go, which yes. was fun at the time, but it's gone now and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me about how the blog started, because you you were there with your perfect mummy mug in full of red wine. And when did you start writing? Um, and and why? How did it come to you? I'm going to blog this journey. Well, um, actually, I mean, the main reason is because I knew I needed to I needed some sort of help. I needed to do something. But I was really, really ashamed of the mess I got myself into and you know I felt I didn't feel I could talk to anyone I didn't feel I could talk to my husband or my friends or you know let alone a professional like a GP or or AA or you know anything Um, but I felt like I had I had to get it all off my chest but I didn't want to I didn't want to do that 
in real life. So, uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write a diary because that's what I used to do when I was much younger. Um, and and then I thought, well, actually, no, this is the twenty first century, and people don't write diaries anymore. You know, they write blogs, and so I'll set up a blog. I called myself Sober Mummy, so I blogged under a pseudonym. And I thought, well, this way I can get everything off my chest without anyone knowing it's me. Um, so I spent ages trying to make sure that, though, you know, nobody could relate it back to, to me. Uh, and then I just used it as therapy. I just poured my heart out every day. And I didn't publicise it because, you know, what what most people do with blogs is they link it to their social media and they, you know, they post on social media and they say, read my blog. And I, I couldn't do that because I didn't want anyone to know it was me. So, uh, yeah, so I didn't publicise it at all, but still people found it. Yeah, so so it was really a, a therapy thing. And it still is. I still write for therapy. Um, but that's that's how it all began. And gradually that community grew quite significantly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, by the end of the first year, I'd had about two million hits on the blog, which was, you know, which is extraordinary given that that it, it wasn't publicised. And I think the, I think the reason is because there were so many people like me who were, you know, googling late at night, "Am I an alcoholic?" and "How do I quit drinking?" And as the blog became more popular, Google would lead people in my direction. So, um, so yeah, so it just it sort of gradually took off by itself. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Still, every day I get emails or messages from you know, on social media from people all over the world who've read it. And I think what people say most often is, you know, your story could be my story. Um, you know, we are we are twins separated at birth, <laughs> and yeah. which which is really the reason why I wanted to do it, because when you know, when I first quit, and, and I'm sure you felt the same, you know, you feel so alone, you feel like you are the only person in the world who is, is struggling with this substance that everybody else seems to enjoy as a matter of course. And, you know, finding out that you're not alone is a really, really powerful thing. Um, and that's what people say to me most frequently is reading your book made me feel less alone. Yeah, so, it's a huge, a huge relief, isn't it? Mm. Because yeah, I think your self-esteem is on the floor when you're struggling alone, and you keep trying and failing and trying and yeah, failing, and you, and you think yourself, you know, you what's think, wrong what's with wrong? You know, why, why am I so weak and pathetic and useless? <laughs> you know, which and we look at our not, husbands having know. their one glass of wine, and you think, mm. why can't I do that? Yeah. So tell me about the moment that Sober Diaries came out with your name all over it. You've got a lovely story about the school gates when you were hiding because <laughs> all oh, the other mums suddenly knew about it. Yeah, that well, that, that actually was before before the book came out when, you know, I was just starting to talk to publishers and um, I threw a I threw a party. So I was still at the, this moment right in the closet. Um, and I threw a party um, and I gave a little speech at the party and I told a story about something my husband had said or something like that. And 
And then I wrote my a blog post about the party and I told the same story. And um, I got about a day later, I got an email from one of the mums at the school gate who I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that well. And she said, um, uh, she said, hi, but she had she had come to my party um, and she said, hi, Claire. Um, uh, you know, thanks so much for the party. And I uh, just had a question I wanted to ask you. She said, <laughs> she said, I, I've been reading this blog for about six months and I, I really love it. And I often read it out loud to my husband and we both laugh about it and talk about how it could so easily be somebody we knew. And I think it's you. And are you sober, mummy? <laughs> and yeah. she'd, she just put, you know, read the, the blog post and realised that, that there was, you know, too many coincidences and it had to be me. So, uh, so that Boston. was the moment at which I thought, <laughs> OK, I might as well come out at this point. So, uh, so yeah, so, so that was the first moment I, I sort of stopped being anonymous. And then when, uh, you know, about three nights before the book was about to be published, I, I did go into a complete panic because my publisher had lined up all this publicity, you know, so I was going to be on national TV and national radio and, and you know, they were serialising the whole thing in the Daily Mail um, and it was all over the place and, you know, and I was going to be doing all of this talking not about something I was proud of but about the worst time of my life and about all my terrible deepest darkest secrets and I thought what am I doing and I had this I had this recurring dream three nights in a row which um, I don't know if you've ever had you know that dream where you're walking down a street and you're naked and everybody is staring at you <laughs> and I had that dream which is how it felt it felt like I was about yeah. to go walking down a street naked um and yeah, it was terrifying. But actually, what I discovered is that when you are, when you make yourself really vulnerable, um, people are generally really kind, you know, um, it's, and also when you, when you, when you tell all your darkest secrets yourself, nobody has anything they can level at you because you've already done it. So, you know, then what are they going to say? They're going to say, you're a terrible lush. It's like, yeah, I just said that, you know, you're a terrible mother. Yeah, I said that too. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's nothing left they can beat you with, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So in fact, coming out wasn't as bad as you feared. No, it was actually really liberating. And, um, you know, and now I look back and I'm amazed at and angry about how ashamed I felt and how unable I felt to talk about these things, which is why I did the TED Talk. I did a TED Talk called uh, Making Sober Less Shameful because I was just so cross that, that you know, not just me, but so many other people. And the pe reason people found my blog is because they were too, again, too ashamed to, to ask for help in real life and they were looking for help on the internet. And, you know, I mean, that's just... You know, it's just a shame. Yeah, so so many people stay trapped. And, and I was a little bit like that because I, I, I think it, my thought process must have been, well, I got myself into this mess. Now I'm going to get myself out of this mess and mm -hmm. surely I can manage that. But, you know, I couldn't. But I think, you know, when we ask people on, on the workshop what their biggest fears are about 
getting sober their their fears are what will people say because paradoxically if you say i've stopped drinking everybody goes oh did you have a problem then yeah <laughs> so it's it's yeah, very nobody difficult worries about that with smoking they don't say oh what will people no. say if i stop smoking you know or stop taking cocaine or whatever yeah. it might yeah. be um, but drinking you know we're made to feel you know i mean the most when people ask me what the most difficult thing was about quitting drinking, my answer is always other people. Yeah, I mean, the social norms are, are just huge. And the combination, of course, as you'll you'll know how it all works, being from advertising, <laughs> the double whammy of all the marketing, you know, implying, especially to us mm -hmm. ladies, that we can't possibly be happy unless we're drinking lots of wine. And then the social norms that treat you like a pariah if you don't drink. Mm -hmm. It really is the toughest part of the whole thing. Yeah, but, you know, things are changing because yeah. um for instance you know when when i first quit uh, the only people really talking about not drinking were anonymous bloggers like me but um now you know if you look at the sober community on instagram for instance it's huge and everyone is instagramming under their own names using their you know pictures of their real faces and their real lives and everyone is sort of like out and proud about it and you know, that's a wholly good thing, particularly the under 30s. Um, you know, Absolutely. I think the, for the over 50s, there's still a sort of, you know, I, I think it's all still very entrenched. But the younger generation, you know, think it's cool not to drink. You know, my children yeah, think my, that alcohol yeah. is, is a really sort of you know, dull drug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, my son uh, messaged me the other day and he said, oh, mum, you have to look at TikTok. There's a huge sober community on there. Mm. And I was thinking, what? Isn't TikTok <laughs> for teenagers? So I had a look and, and there's some brilliant videos and memes and things, you know, about um, sobriety. It's, uh, it amazed me. I wasn't expecting to see it there at all. So let's take you back to those early years of sobriety. So obviously, you know, you are a writer and, and the blogging um, really helped and used it as therapy. Uh, what other things did you do? You are listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Um, I think like everyone, you know, I had a toolkit of things I would try when, you know, when cravings hit and when I, when things got really tough. And there were, you know, a lot of little things that, you know, I almost had a mental list of, you know, do this, do this, do this until you feel better, you know. So it would be things like having a hot bath, um, making a hot chocolate, um, uh, cleaning. I used, I did some frenzied cleaning in the early days just to keep myself busy. And, you know, I'm not normally, a you know, a, a, an avid cleaner. So, you know, I don't think my house has ever been as, as immaculate. Um, and, um, and I think one of the, I did a lot of reading. I read so much about alcohol. I read um, novels about alcohol, like um, uh, Marion Keyes' Rachel's Holiday, one of my favourites. Um, I read memoirs, I read factual stuff, um, you know, I, I sort of, I had a whole stash of books hidden under the bed, <laughs> which which I, I read through constantly. Um, and uh, and I found, I found exercise helpful. Uh, I did a lot of long walks with the dogs, um, uh, listening to audio books to keep myself sort of distracted, um, or podcasts or whatever. Um, and then Actually, one of my top tips for the very, very early days is to change um, change the hours 
your hours of the day. So, um, you know, generally I found that evenings were the hardest because that's when I really associated with drinking. Um, and mornings were the easiest because, you know, I'd, apart from that once, I'd never drunk in the mornings. And and I, so I didn't have any of the drinking associations. And mornings without hangovers, I was discover, discovering are amazing <laughs> revelations. So, so what I started doing is is shifting my hours so that I would go to bed really early and get up really, really early. So I started going to bed at the same time as the kids, really, about sort of, you know, seven or eight o'clock. And I would just read in bed, watch you know Netflix, drink hot chocolate, go to sleep really, really early. And then I'd wake up at about 5 a.m. and I'd feel absolutely brilliant. And for me, what that did is it just meant that I'd taken out the hardest part of the day and I'd added on to the easiest part of the day. And for the first few weeks, that's just a little life hack that really, you know, helps make things easier, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great tip. Yeah, I always say to people, shake up your routine, you know, mm. so that maybe at six o'clock, rather than opening the wine, you're going for a run, you know, or going to the gym. Yeah, but I, I love that, you know, going to bed. Triggers. Really so, you know, yeah. one, of, one of my big triggers was cooking. You know, whenever I, I cooked in the evening, I would drink while I was cooking. So I would cook the evening meal in the morning and then just heat it up in the evening. So I didn't have that cooking trigger. So, yeah, so it's just trying to shake up your routine so that those those subconscious associations are sort of, you know, are, are changed. Yeah, quite, quite a lot of people in our community, and it certainly happened to me, they're kind of flying through their first three or four months of sobriety and, you know, the pink cloud is still around and they're feeling good. And then they they kind of sink and then they they feel low and rather depressed and they think oh I'm not sure can I carry on with this and and now you know because I I understand more I understand it's all about the dopamine Mm. (laughs) because you're you're not producing that natural dopamine are you your body's got lazy because it's got so used to uh, relying on, on alcohol and I wondered did you go through that that low I call it the void <laughs> yeah I, I call it the wall um, oh. and um, and actually I wrote about it in in the sober diaries because you know like you I was really hit by it you know you think oh look you know I'm doing really well and then bang you know and mm. and it can really throw people off because you know, you it's really demotivating, just as you think everything's getting better to, you know, find that it suddenly got worse. And, you know, it was described to me as being a bit like a rubber band, you know, your, your brain chemistry has to readjust to a world without being constantly flooded with dopamine. So initially, it compensates by you know, by flooding the brain with with excess dopamine, which is why you get the happy pink cloud. And then it's like a like an elastic band pinging back. It realizes it's been overcompensating and overcompensates in the opposite direction, which is when you get the wall. Um, so, you know, suddenly you feel really, really miserable. And then it keeps bouncing backwards and forwards, but less dramatically until it finds an equilibrium. So um, and that can take you know, about two years, but before that freaks you out, it, as I said, it gets better, you know, better and better and better over that time. So towards the end, you hardly notice those cycles. Um, but at the beginning, they're quite dramatic, you know, so really happy, utterly miserable, <laughs> really happy again. Um, and over time, they become the cycles get longer and less dramatic. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of people that when they get to that stage, I can tell that they're really thinking about giving up and they're mm. quite serious. So I immediately send them your bunny blog. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it works time after time. So uh, talk to us about the bunny blog. Maybe uh, tell us how it went viral and give us a little summary of, of what it said. Oh, well, this was um, after about seven months of not drinking um you know i was by this stage i was you know quite tapped into the whole community of of you know of sober people and what i saw over and over again is people doing exactly what i'd done in the past which is you know you'd get so far down the road and then you think, okay, you know, sort of, I, I, this is really hard and I'm really not enjoying it that much and I've hit a bit of a wall and I'm going to go back, you know, start drinking again. And and what I realised, having got to this seven-month point, is that when you do that, you're doing that hard bit over and over and over again and you're never giving it long enough to get to the good bit. And the good bit really takes about, it takes about 100 days to get from you know, from rock bottom to a point where, you know, you really can see what life might be like without alcohol. And if you keep just doing the the first sort of, you know, first month, the, the dry January, the sort of sober October, you're doing, you know, the really hard bits and you're not getting to the really good bits. So, you know, so it's a bit miserable. So I wrote a blog post called The Obstacle Course. And I talked about how I used an analogy of a field and I said, you know, really what it feels like is, you know, you're standing in this field which used to be really lovely. You know, there used to be lots of bunnies hopping around, lots of flowers, sunshine, you know, sort of everything was really beautiful and gloriously technicolor. And gradually over time, um, the sun came out less, it started raining more, it got colder and colder, the bunnies started to disappear. And it happened so gradually that you hardly realised it happened. And then suddenly you look around and you think, this place is really miserable and I don't want to be here anymore. And somebody says to you, look, what are you doing here? You know, there's a much, much better field to live in. And, you know, it's not that far away. It's over there. And, you know, you just need to get through this little obstacle course and then you'll find it and everything will be just like it used to be, you know in the old days, um, uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful sunshine and bunnies and what have you. So you think, okay, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And you throw yourself at the obstacle course. And there are, you know, there are big walls and there are uh, leeches and there are tunnels and it's really hard work and it's exhausting. And you get you know, you've been doing this for, for several days or weeks trying to get through this obstacle course and you're exhausted and you think, I'm not sure I believe that the field is there and I don't think, I don't know how long it, it how far away it is and I'm not sure I can make it. And, you know, whilst my old field was pretty awful, this obstacle course is even worse. So you go back to your field and initially you think, oh, thank God I'm back here. And but very, very quickly, all the reasons you hated it come back and you're, you know, again, you're miserable and it's raining and it's even worse than it was before. There's even sort of, you know, fewer flowers and it's really uncomfortable. So you go again at the obstacle course and the same thing happens. You know, you do the first few obstacles and then go back to the beginning again. 
And what happens every time you do this, you exhaust yourself more and you feel more and more miserable and you feel less and less convinced that it's possible. Um, and what I said is it is possible. It takes about 100 days to get there, but the obstacles get easier and you just have to keep going because if you go back to the beginning, you're doing the hard bits of the obstacle course over and over again. You just have to keep going until you get to the other end. And at the other end is the field of bunnies with the sun shining and all the flowers. And there are lots of people waiting for you. And it will take you about 100 days to get there. But if you keep going, you will get there. And uh, that was the obstacle course sort of post in effect. Um, and I posted that and that's been shared. I haven't checked the stats recently, but it's been shared thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And I've also printed it in the Sober Diaries. Um, and I, I think because because so many people have been through that experience, the same one that I had and, and that you had, you know, that sort of, you know, that you keep throwing yourself at it. And every time you get more exhausted and more disillusioned and you hate yourself more. Um, and uh, and what you really need is just the absolute conviction that there is a field at the other end and that it is possible to get there and that loads of people have done that journey before you. And once you have that conviction, it makes it all so much easier. Oh, well, well, well done for writing that, Claire. It's, it's helped so many people. And I told you it's become a, almost a bit of a lang language in our community and we're, we're all on WhatsApp all the time. And when somebody reaches a landmark, you know, they go, oh, 100 days today. Everyone sends them little bunnies, you know, little <laughs> oh, emojis. So, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for new people, they often say, what are all these bunnies about? <laughs> then I send them the blog and they get it. So, uh, so thank I you. I actually you, posted you. the blog on the Sober Mummy Facebook page on Easter Day because I thought, you oh, know, Oh, buddies nice. Easter day <laughs> so. yeah yeah um yeah I think we both uh, this applied to both of us but I, I was in denial about my drinking for years because I uh, I just wasn't really prepared to face it because I I was always determined to drink never to drink so much that I would have to stop and I mm -hmm. thought I would be able to do that but you know obviously I wasn't and I just wonder for people listening to this uh, thinking, oh, I wonder if I've got a problem or do I need to, to worry about this? What, what do you see as the warning signs? Well, you know what? I mean, I was exactly the same as you, Janet. You know, I, I tried for a very long time to convince myself that I didn't have a problem. And, you know, the number of times I found myself late at night Googling, am I an alcoholic? Um, and and then managing to convince myself by answering the little questionnaires that would always pop up that I wasn't really an alcoholic because I didn't do things like drink in the morning and have the shakes or, you know, um, I didn't have major blackouts. You know, I found any reason I could to cling on to to think this isn't me. And actually what I realise now is I was asking the wrong question. You know, the question isn't am I an alcoholic that's just a red herring you know the terminology is a red herring the question you should be asking is is alcohol messing up my life and if I'd asked that question I would have realized I should quit a lot earlier I think for me I think everyone has the trigger that makes them think this really is messing up my life but for me one of the big ones is how much headspace drink was taking up and I got to the point where I realized that 
I was constantly thinking about drinking. Um, I was thinking about drinking while I was drinking, but I was thinking about drinking even when I wasn't drinking. I was thinking about when am I going to drink next and where am I going to buy it from and how much am I going to buy and and what rules am I going to set myself and um, you know how can I justify doing this and how you know and it was going round and round and round my head all the time and I called that voice the wine witch. Um, and and I think if anyone listening to this who understands instinctively what the wine witch is, that's when you have a problem. People who don't have a problem haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, the what? I think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the addictive voice that any addict to anything has you know if you're addicted to sugar for instance you know you'll have the sugar monster that goes oh go on just another square of chocolate you know I mean same with gambling same with uh shopping you know I mean any anyone who is addicted to anything has that voice in their head um it's also uh people I um I've come across with who have major eating disorders say they have exactly the same voice um so, yeah, so the addict voice, the voice in your head, that's the sign for me, the big sign that there's a problem. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation. When I first quit drinking, I would notice what other people were drinking because it was still always on my mind. And now I just don't notice. You know, I go to a party and I just don't notice what people are drinking, how much they're drinking, who's drinking and who isn't. It just it doesn't, you know, doesn't feature on my radar anymore. Yeah, and what what a relief that is, and especially mm. as you say that it takes up so m- much mental space worrying about it, and now, yeah. now you can focus on on your writing and much more interesting things than yeah, which supermarket people, can I exactly, go to? Exactly, and people do amazing things when they quit drinking because yeah. they suddenly have so much more. It's it's not just you know people expect to have a bit more physical time because you know you uh, you realise that yeah you're going to have less time drunk less time hung over so you're going to have more physical hours in the day but what people don't take into account is the the effect of having more mental time as well and and that is the real transformation i think and people do incredible things with all that mental time they suddenly accumulate yeah yeah we we see that over and over in our community you know we've got people um painting wonderful pictures mm. and taking up horse riding and and I'm always quoting you actually as a as a wonderful example because uh, you always wanted to write didn't mm. you as a child I think and once you got sober you suddenly had the time and the creativity to do that because I, I think drinking kind of dulls your mind and yeah. I, I bet you couldn't have written such good books no, <laughs> even if no, you had I, that I, the time. I, and I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it because I had, didn't have any self-respect or you know, and I was, I was really, I was spent a lot of time being very anxious and afraid. And uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't have had the nerve to even give it a go, I don't think. But what's interesting about that is that um, so often people, when they quit drinking, talk about coming full circle. And you often end up almost back 
at uh, much more like you used to be as a teenager before sort of, you know, alcohol took hold. So, you know, often people say, you know, I used to be as a teenager, I was really creative, I was really confident, I was, you know, really energetic. And they discover, rediscover all those things as they, they quit drinking. And they also rediscover their childhood passions. So often when people get sober, I ask them, you know, what did you really love doing when you were a child? You know, what was your thing? You know, was it drawing? Was it um, uh, sport? Was it um, music? You know, what, what really, what did you love doing? And often those are the things that people rediscover when they quit drinking. And often yeah. they turn those passions into a whole new career. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing. If someone's listening that would like to quit drinking, but they just don't know where to start, they just feel overwhelmed by it all, as we both did some years ago. A any advice? Where, where should they start? Oh, well, I, th I think there, there are three things um, uh, I think you need to do right at the beginning. The first is write it down, because you mentioned this earlier, Janet, you said, you know, it's so easy to forget how bad it was. Um, and, you know, it's like when you're in the middle of that obstacle course, you forget how bad that original field felt. You know, you convince yourself it was OK, really. Um, so write it down, write down all the reasons why you want to quit and all the ways it makes you feel. And, you know, uh, just it doesn't have to be a blog. It can be on a piece of paper. It can be on a Facebook post. It can be wherever you want. Just write it down. Make sure you have a record because that's really helpful later on if you want to go back and see how far you've come or convince yourself you're doing the right thing. Um, the second thing I would suggest doing is finding a tribe of some sort. And they say that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I'm sure the reason why me quitting this time worked when it hadn't before is because I had a tribe of other people doing the same thing with me. And that's why um, um, AA has been so successful over the decades um, is because it's about finding a tribe. So um, a tribe like Janet's tribe um, is perfect. Um, you know, it can be virtual, it can be in real life, uh, however you want, but find other people doing the same thing because then you'll help each other. Um, and then the final thing is try and be excited rather than scared um, because it's so easy to focus on all the things you think you're losing um, and instead try and focus on all the things you're gaining. Um, and what I find really helpful is doing a sort of vision board. So just get pictures, words, um, emotions, things you want your life, you know, picture how you want your life to look in a year's time and stick it on the fridge or stick it right by your bed so you see it first thing in the morning and just have that in mind the whole time because the truth is you're not losing anything, you're gaining so much and it is hard, it's really hard and that's why you need to be excited at the beginning of that journey because if you're not you'll never make it to the end of the hundred days um, and you'll quit part way through the the obstacle course so very last question i promise um top three benefits of sobriety for me the very top one is peace and what i mean by that is the absence of that voice in your head that we talked about earlier so not having to deal with the wine witch anymore um and you know 
I don't think I ever in the old days had moments where my mind was still and now I do and that is you know that is immeasurable um, what a difference that makes so that would be my first thing um, my second thing would be courage um, and again I mentioned how when I was drinking I felt anxious a lot of the time and fearful and whenever I was nervous about something I would just have a drink and my life got smaller and smaller and smaller and I was less able or willing to take any form of risk at all and um, since I quit drinking I've been so much more courageous and fearless and I've done things that you know like publishing a book that I never would have done if I was still drinking so courage is my number two and then my number three is self-respect um, because I think almost everyone I've talked to who's been addicted to alcohol gets to the point where they hate themselves, um, or at least they don't like themselves very much. And that's a really miserable way to live. Um, and particularly when you're constantly waking up at three o'clock in the morning, berating yourself for being such a terrible person. And, you know, we spend a lot of time with ourselves. So if you hate the person you're spending all this time with, then, you know, it's, as I said, it's a miserable way to live. So self-respect would be my number three. So peace, courage, self-respect. So there you heard a lovely mix of inspiration and practical tips from the fabulous Claire Pooley. Let me pick out a few highlights for you. Like many of us, Claire started drinking socially and over the years it evolved to drinking to manage her emotions whether she was celebrating or commiserating, the wine would come out. Eventually, she was drinking every day. One glass at the end of the day became two, which became a bottle with a bit more at the weekend. She was horrified to realise that she was putting away 90 units a week when the low-risk guidelines are just 14. One of Claire's coping strategies was to write. She started an anonymous blog called mummywasasecretdrinker.com and blogged every day for three years. She used her blog as therapy and poured her heart out into it every day. She gained a huge following on this blog, two million hits by the end of year one. Claire believes that we all feel alone in our problem with alcohol and that's why her blog resonated with so many people. She discovered that her honesty and vulnerability attracted many readers. Looking back, she feels angry that we feel so much shame around our drinking and that's why she did a TED talk on that very subject. I'll put the link in the show notes. Claire shared some of her strategies with us. They included writing, hot baths, hot chocolate, cleaning, reading books about alcohol, exercise, audio books and podcasts. But she came up with this really clever tip. I think it's great and I wish that I'd known about this when I was um, in my early days of sobriety. What she did was she changed the hours of the day around. She completely shook out her routine. Because she found mornings easy and evenings hard, she decided that she'd go to bed really early, about 7 o'clock when the children went to bed. And then from her bed she'd watch a movie or read some books and slept really early. And then she'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning feeling fantastic. Made it so much easier during those first difficult months because she was just cutting out those dangerous hours in the evening when she usually used to drink. 
Another great tip from Claire was about cooking. Now, many people like to sip on the wine while they're preparing the evening meal, and Claire was one of those people. So she decided that she would cook in the morning and then heat it up in the evening because she would certainly never feel like drinking in the morning when she was preparing that. So again, I think that's a fabulous tip. Thank you, Claire. Like many of us, she had a major low in early sobriety. She calls this the wall and believes it's down to your brain chemistry trying to adjust. If you accept that you're going to have ups and downs, then it really helps. And the thing to remember is that these highs and lows actually get less severe as time goes on. Of course, that led us to talk about her bunny blog, which went viral. The obstacle course, it's called. I'll put the link in the show notes. This blog emphasises that if we stop and start with our drinking, all we're doing is the hardest bit over and over again. So the important thing to remember is just push through, keep going however hard it gets. The magic is on the other side of the wall, as she calls it. I asked her for some advice for newbies, people just starting out on this journey. She advised that you write down how bad it was so you don't forget. I know exactly what she means because a few months into your alcohol-free life, you start having dangerous thoughts like, oh, maybe I wasn't that bad after all, or maybe I could just manage the odd glass of wine. And of course, write down your why list. Why are you doing this? I ask people that when we begin our workshops and those reasons are always big reasons. You know, it's connected with their family or their jobs or their health. You know, it's not small things that make people realise they've got to stop drinking. And of course, she said, find your tribe. It's impossible to do this alone. So please go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe and you'll see what we can offer. My final questions to Claire were about the benefits of sobriety. What were her personal top three benefits? Straight away she answered me, peace, courage and self-respect. What fantastic reasons to get sober. So thank you, Claire. Lots of inspiration there. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.